Hello, uh, this is Michael Farragher, and I want to thank you once again for joining us Between the Borders. Today I'd like to talk to you about the NATO Stay Behind missions. Now, this is collectively known in the public consciousness as Operation Gladio, and I will likely refer to, the, uh, refer to it as that in the future, but Operation Gladio specifically was the Italian Stay Behind mission. Now, what this means is that in the wake of World War II, the specter of communism was high enough on the European theater that they were rather expecting that the Soviet Union was going to invade. Now, whether or not things would go nuclear, who knows, but these stay-behind missions were designed so you would have capable personnel with stockpiles that did not have to be smuggled into the region to perform uh, guerrilla or clandestine activities. And this is a theory behind the German werewolf group, which I do believe actually existed. There's some questions whether or not there's any formality in the violence in the aftermath of the end of the war. But if these groups were trained and did have stockpiles, it's almost certain that at least one of them actively participated in hostilities. Uh, one of the reasons for the more wishy-washy uh, pieces of that statement is exactly what happened in Operation Gladio. Uh, Gladio in Italy was never activated. I mean, the Soviets never invaded, uh, the Cold War remained cold, and was largely a war of uh, spies and information warfare. Fair enough. But what happened is the supplies were there, the training was there, and what happened? Uh, criminals used them to settle their own accounts, which is expected, I guess, given the situation. Uh, first, not to uh, not to slander Italy, but when you take Italy and Sicily as a whole, there's a good amount of organized crime that tends to be violent. Now, when these stockpiles exist, eventually these people are going to understand uh, where the stockpiles are. They are going to go and get them. These are high-value contraband commodities. And they're not going to just let them sit there when they could use them. Also, if you have the right kind of person, or I guess the wrong kind of person in this case, who is aware of these stockpiles, it may encourage them to go forth and use them. And that's really where things start to get a little sticky. It's very hard to tell people the situation that things were in if they hadn't lived through at least some portion of the uh, Red Scare, as it were. But people were terrified of communism, absolutely terrified, and they were willing to go to great lengths to protect themselves. Uh, during the Battle of Elba, I forget what it's actually called, but uh, the 9th and 12th German armies, along with several thousand, either thirty or 300,000 civilians, uh, fought a massive and bloody battle through enemy lines for the sole purpose of surrendering uh, to the U.S. and other European powers as opposed to surrendering to the Russians. There was very little uh, love between the Germans and the Soviets by the time Operation Barbarossa occurred, and certainly not after Stalingrad. And it... It makes perfect sense that they would not want to surrender to the Soviets. Uh, over, depending on the estimates you're looking at, even the Soviet estimates 
state that over 300,000 prisoners of war died in Soviet hands, uh, of German prisoners of war alone. Germany places the number somewhere between 300,000 and 1 million, uh, depending on whether or not they count the missing in action personnel as captured by the Soviets. And most of them did not die well. I mean, apart from simply being killed by the soldiers uh, at the time, many of them were shipped off to work camps where they worked well past the end of the war. Some of the last known uh, German prisoners were released by the Soviets in the mid-1950s, approximately 10 years after the end of the war. But they were at work camps. They were in factories. They were put to use by the Soviets who basically either worked them to death or worked them until they were forced to release them. It makes sense that they would not want to surrender to that. Even from a civilian standpoint, uh, the civilians didn't want to be there. There's a widely known, uh, I won't say humorous, but widely known mockery of the statues of Soviet soldiers put up in Eastern Europe, calling them the monument of the unknown rapist. There are um, very bad times after the Soviet occupation of Eastern Germany. It's also important to note that uh, Russia had lost something like 10% of its population in the war, uh, both due to uh, their internal purges, starvation, and the war itself. They were beyond dedicated to doing whatever needed to get done, no matter the cost to the people of Russia. And I don't know what else to say on that topic. They were able to do the things that no uh, more civilized nation would do. Stalin was, quite simply, a madman. I mean, he had no respect for human life. His or anyone else, well, his people's or anyone else's, I'm sure he respected his life quite thoroughly. Uh, But despite the general feeling of uh, anti-communist sentiment, uh, there was one group that particularly aided them, and that was the Nazis. (laughs) So, if you're going to have somebody with a good amount of training and some real anti-communist sentiment, you go to the Nazis. And I think we see where we're going here. A lot of these NATO stay-behind missions actively courted uh, members of the Nazi party and Nazi sympathizers because they knew they would be against the Soviets. And this this should have shown us exactly what was going to happen in Afghanistan. Uh, you arm the enemy of your enemy, and they go and take care of whatever they feel like taking care of. We do have documented cases of the stockpiles from Operation Gladio and people involved in Operation Gladio actively committing personal acts of crime, uh, basically misusing the entire resources of the operation, including the training and the trust, in order to, you know, do uh, whatever they felt like, and kill their opposition, go rob a bank, whatever. I want to point out the only confirmed Gladio operation, not Gladio operation, the only confirmed crime that I know of with Gladio equipment was simply a political murder, uh, an assassination, maybe even a terrorist attack, as it were. But that is, in fact, a crime absolutely operated with uh, Gladio stockpiles.
the question quickly becomes, given the, the obvious risk, why would NATO decide to set up these stockpiles and have this stay-behind mission? Well, it made sense. It made sense if you're expecting an occupation. Uh, the Germans once again created the werewolf, and they generally had a pretty good theory going. And that was, we can do this to harry and harass, and we don't have an endgame. But at that point, the Germans, they decided they couldn't have an endgame. The war was already lost. They were preparing for the future. Uh, they were probably looking more towards attempting to, in the short term, uh, protect their identity. Because if that's one thing the Soviets did, is once you entered the Soviet sphere of influence, you lost your cultural identity. You became Soviet. There was nothing but the Soviet Union. And they actually spent an inordinate amount of time destroying personal records. You know, they go to churches, they destroy the books, they destroy any sort of history. The only thing they didn't do, which was something that the Romans were great at, is breaking up families and forcing them to intermarry so now you wouldn't have ethnic bloodlines. This situation wasn't unique to uh, the Germans, however. Uh, Dach and uh, Total Resistance is basically a response to that. It was yet another book written on um, written on insurgency tactics and uh, stay behind mission. And once again, I cover all of this in substantially more detail in the American Insurgent, but it was designed expressly for countering a Soviet invasion. This was a major, major concern. And it's easy to look back now and say, well, why would you set up these armed and radical groups to do this? And looking at it, it's hard not to, uh, in the time, it's hard not to think that this might be a good idea. The Soviets were willing to throw millions of troops at you and lose each and every one of them. And what do you have left? They just beat the Germans. The United States could produce a tremendous amount of material, but they weren't necessarily as committed to the war as they would need to be to fight the Soviets. The German and Soviet losses during World War II eclipsed everything else except the possibility of the Holocaust. Uh, with at least 6 million Polish Jews alone killed, uh, that tips the scales tremendously. But look at the rest of the nations. France was occupied. France would take years to get back on its feet. Uh, Spain, they're not going to be doing too terribly much. Italy had flipped sides a few times and really wasn't, uh, wasn't a core uh, group here. And England had basically sacrificed its entire empire in the name of stopping the Nazis. And once again, you know, UK, thank you. I mean, uh, the British Empire effectively fell apart due to the stresses of World War II, uh, due to the sacrifices made. And if they had not held the line, the Germans would have taken the continent. There would have never been an Operation Barbarossa. 
the Germans would have consolidated without a second front, and the history would have been completely different. I don't want to say that modern history hinged on the Battle of Britain. Uh, frankly, there are a lot of individual points that history hinges on. Uh, history hinged not only on the uh, invasion at Normandy, but on the disinformation campaigns that convinced Hitler that he would uh, be better off defending other regions uh, directly across the channel in the closer region, so on and so forth. And it also hinged upon Hitler being a massive control freak and sleeping in that day. So, history is made up of a thousand little choices, of a thousand minor, relatively minor events but of discrete points where things could have swung either way. But Britain's decision that the world is more important than its empire was a tremendous decision. And, well, I mean, they were saving themselves, don't get me wrong, but it saved the rest of us too. Nobody wanted the Soviet Union to take over Europe. And taking a look at Gladio we see that this was actually a rational response. Having these stay-behind groups ready to take action made perfect sense. Now, their selection of non-military personnel, or at least not their military, uh, was problematic. The decision that they would leave heavy munitions and weaponry in places that were disarmed was problematic. The fact that they didn't simply leave uh, communications equipment and other logistical support that wasn't weaponry, again, there was an issue there. But the core concept of leaving behind a force that, when overrun, uh, could harry the enemy from inside or perform actions as dictated by their legitimate governments in exile, that made perfect sense. Even from a plain intelligence aspect, uh, they could definitely use people on the inside. And that, that at least, I can show you a parallel with. Based on my conversations and the general tone of people, I pretty much figured that in the intelligence world, the professionals all believe that, not all, but predominantly believe that either the Russian intelligence mechanisms or the Israeli are some of the best, if not the best, in the world. Now I'm going to table the Russian mechanisms because the Russians are unique. But unique in a way that doesn't involve hurting people. It Okay, so Mossad also, <laughs> Mossad also hurts people. Uh, unique in a way that... I'm just going to talk about Mossad now. Mossad uh, is in a unique position. Not necessarily because it is Mossad, although for a time that was a unique position, uh, but because Israel is a Jewish state. Now the effectiveness of Mossad is, at least in part, because they can go to any nation on the world that has a Jewish population and find someone who is willing to act on their behalf. It is basically having a collection of sleeper cells that can be activated. Now, 
these aren't the sort of cells that are going to like, hey, you know, shalom, and I'm going to hand you this bomb and go blow something up. No, no, no. As a matter of fact, intelligence usually doesn't do any of that anyway. Uh, but what it means is that they can go to, uh, they can go to a synagogue, uh, they can go to a group, they can figure out uh, who is the most devoted to the state of Israel, and then you know, if you could do us the great favor of just keeping your eyes and ears open, uh, talk to this person, see what they think, do this. Uh, if you hear anything about that, you know, I hear that you work for Raytheon. If you could get us the you know, production for that missile, uh, we'd be very thankful. That sort of thing. That is an intelligence gold mine and the ability to have a deep personal and even spiritual connection. It's remarkable. It is incredibly important. And that is the point of these stay-behind missions, where you can walk up to somebody and say, hey, you, well, not even walk up. You can radio somebody who's on the other side of thousands of troops and say, we need you to do this one precision thing that will make all the difference. We need you to tell us troop strengths. We need to tell you where the artillery is. We need you to tell us, you know, anything. Any rational piece of information that can be delivered is worth its weight in gold, and that is the stay-behind mission. And in every, in every conflict you see this. Uh, you have the uh, the infiltration of the communists as a party into the United States, where they try to get locals uh, any fifth column. You get it's basically the reason why we get the loose lip loose lip sync ships credo. Everyone is potentially working for someone else, and when you have that connection, when somebody really really makes that connection with you and you have someone inside that makes all the difference take a look at terrorist recruiting these days a lot of this is done with um, the recruiting arms are almost universally religious for the uh, for the Islamic terror groups for the jihadi groups and the reason why is they get this connection and they talk to people who are vulnerable, who need guidance, who need help, who need faith. And they find them and turn them into the fifth column. They turn them into the internal threat, the internal intelligence source. And that makes all the difference. You can't expect to do that when the invader kicks down the door and has already taken the entire region. As I said... The Russians, and by extension of the time the Soviets, had one of the best intelligence apparatus in the world, and they were ruthless. Uh, they destroyed uh, religion, they destroyed ethnicity, all for the sole purpose of destroying everything that wasn't communism. That way you couldn't get in. There was no loyalty but to the party. Mossad couldn't come in and speak to the Jewish community because there was no Jewish community. You couldn't come in and speak to the Hungarian community because there was no Hungarian community. It was all Soviet. One of the more interesting campaigns the CIA ever waged was the smuggling of historical, uh, religious, and ethnically uh, ethnic history documents into the Soviet Union. It was worth smuggling histories into the Soviet Union. 
that says so much about the importance of these affairs, of the importance of having not only a personal identity or destroying personal identity if you're that if you're on that side of the fence, but also all of this was to keep someone if not on your side, from falling to the other side. Operation Gladio gave NATO the ability to have people in place. They didn't have to look around. They didn't have to try to send uh, commandos over the border. They didn't have to try to smuggle explosives. They didn't have to try to airdrop anything. There were people and stockpiles there for at least a limited amount of missions where you could reasonably expect to perform uh, these intelligence actions, these covert actions, these special forces actions at the right place, at the right time, and to do one of those things that could change the course of history. The failure was in the people. It wasn't in the prod, it wasn't in the, uh, the plan, it was the people. Many nations had these stay-behind programs, and by and large, the only issues were in Italy. There were some other, there were some other dust-ups, uh, some other questions, some other investigations. But to the best of my knowledge, and I must admit I'm not an expert on Galadio, to the best of my knowledge, Italy saw really the only use of these munitions and such uh, against a civilian population. And that, that makes me think it's something different. If you take a look at the United States, we have more weapons than people. I mean, that is, uh, that is simply a fact. And our homicide rates, they're actually not terribly bad. People will tell you, well, you know, worse homicide rates and the whatever artificial thing. But we still have... First world nations, well, now they're first world because they're not the Soviets, but Russia has horrific homicide rates. Uh, many nations have horrific homicide rates. And you take a look, and you start thinking, wait a second, it's the people. You know, I mean, you don't have the issues with the weaponry. Uh, Gladio, Russia, the U.S., it's not the fact that the weapons are there. It's the fact that you have someone with the intent to use them. So you got the wrong sort of people. You got the Nazis who were happy to be violent in Operation Gladio. And Italy was already a divided power during the war. First it was Axis, then it was Allies. It really... It was a bad place to have mixed loyalties and if you were a Nazi, your loyalties were absolutely mixed. Sure, you defend yourself against the Soviets, but the, uh, the government already flipped on you once. So, I think that was the issue. Now, the Stay Behind mission, I don't think there's anything we need to do with it at this time. I mean, Gladio can fade into the history books. Uh, hopefully they've gotten rid of all the stockpiles. Hopefully, uh, at this point, the personnel are going to be far too old to actually uh, go into combat operations. But hopefully everything is finalized and done. We don't need a Gladio at this time. 
we could probably stand to, you know, get the Ukrainians a little better equipped, but we don't have a Soviet Union. Uh, Russia seems to be happy playing its economic warfare game. A uh, little bit of little bit of information warfare online, but they're not invading countries except Ukraine. We don't need the same sort of stay-behind missions. What we need is we need local support, and we're losing local support. That was the entire point of Gladio, is to have these local support mechanisms that were, uh, were sympathetic to the cause. Right now, we don't need to worry about that. Pretty much all of Europe is pretty sympathetic to democracy. They kind of enjoy democracy to a greater or lesser extent, depending on which nation you're discussing. But we have what we were fighting for. Even the Russians outside of the Kremlin are actually pretty freedom-loving. They like doing what they do. You know, they're not, they're not the most opulent nation. But they, they do what they do. They are still very, uh, very technically and technologically savvy. They do great things in entertainment. They're, they're fun people, for the most part. You know, okay, fun people. <laughs> they're, they're honest. I like their honesty. You don't get the artificial, the artificial happiness. And that sometimes might come off as dour, but they're happy when they're happy. They're sad when they're sad. They're angry when they're angry. They're good, honest folk. They support their community, and that's kind of what the communists preyed on. At the end of the day, Operation Gladio was mostly rendered obsolete by the, uh, the ability to send video from our cell phones. Hear me out. You take a look at Euromaidan. You take a look at Arab Spring. You take a look at what's happening in Iran right now. And we don't need a fifth column in place giving us information. We have people recording things and sending them back to us. I never needed to wonder the situation in Ukraine because most of the time I had video cameras on it. I managed to track that buck launcher that shot down MH17 just by people posting pictures of the launcher making its way through the country on Twitter. The amount of information is staggering. While we don't have any combat arms sitting behind the lines, all of our intelligence needs are taken care of. We have satellites that we can use to observe a situation. We have drones. We have stealth aircraft that can drop munitions wherever we feel like. We have halo drops. We can put people and equipment and munitions wherever we want. But Gladio is no longer a viable theory. The stay-behind mission is no longer a viable theory because we already have all the information we could need. I mean, it'd be great to have some random guy walk into Tula and get us the new plans or, you know, uh, uh, walk into Narinko and pour some walnut husks and some coolant. But that doesn't pay off. If you get these people and you supply them and they end up turning to simply their own means, their own crimes. And that was a lesson that we had repeatedly.
Just because they are our enemy's enemy doesn't mean we should equip them and supply them with the expectation they'll never turn the weapons on us. Because they will almost certainly turn the weapons on us. I'd like to thank you for joining us once again. Uh, this is Michael Farragher. And particularly today, I'd like to thank you because it's going to be a little choppier and it's going to be a little weirder than usual because of the massive amounts of coughing that I had to cut out of this particular uh, podcast. I uh, <laughs> Like there, there we go. Um, <laughs> thank you once again. Uh, we do have our presence on uh, Facebook and Twitter. We have a Patreon account for So Inclined. We have a mobile optimized uh, experience on Stitcher. Otherwise, uh, we are always available at SoundCloud and iTunes. And please contact us at BetweenTheBorders.com. We're happy for any feedback. And if you have any ideas for future episodes, please let us know. We are one day away from ending this sort of time trial experiment. Uh, I've thrown a bunch of things up of differing lengths, of differing styles, and I'd like to once again encourage everyone to please uh, provide me feedback. We have, uh, we are doing extremely well as far as uh, listeners, and I'm very happy. Thank each and every one of you. Uh, if you've told a friend, thank you even more. But I don't receive enough feedback on the content, and hopefully that means that everyone's happy with what's going on, but if you have any concerns, any questions, I did get one piece of feedback on the audio quality. He says it's improved. I hope it's improved for all of you. But if there's anything else, please, please let us know. Uh, we're doing this so we can give you the best product that we can. Once again, thank you very much, and stay safe.